Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan Ego Blasted Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy New Baby Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you New Baby Swingle? I think the audience can probably already hear um, our special guest, my son, in the, in the <laughs> distance. Um, hopefully not too loud. I mean, you guys come to the John 315 podcast for only the best in podcasting, uh, you know, uh, quality. So Yes, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, have, I live in a tiny house, so... Uh, so we're going to deal with whatever we get there on that end. Um, the the cries of babes worshiping the Lord, right? Yes, uh, yes, totally. <laughs> yeah, see, there we go. <laughs> well, let's hope that that doesn't uh, permeate the whole episode. But uh, yeah, so I got my second son here. And, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, contrary to popular belief, uh, he's very different than the first one. They're not all the same. <laughs> so, um, and it... This is my disclaimer for this episode. If I say anything wildly heretical, you know why. It's because I haven't slept nearly enough. So uh, so there you go. That gives me a pass, right? Yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, what about you, John? Uh, tell your story about your ego being blasted. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, as uh, I've talked about on the, the podcast before, um, so I, I do CrossFit as a you know way of um, keeping active. And uh, this time around right now, the CrossFit Open is going on. So, you know, people from around the world all participate. Um, you know, everybody does the same workout and you get judged and then you get a certain number of reps and you like register your score and kind of see where you place against everybody in your age bracket. And it's kind of this whole big, you know, fun thing, kind of get, get the whole group together. Um, <laughs> and I'm ego blasted Van Schenk because I was like, I, I was finally pushing, you know, to, to, make sure I was doing like all of the official weights for everything on it. Uh, and I got like dead last among all of the guys at my like CrossFit gym. <laughs> so it's just another one of those like, Oh yeah, I still really got a long way to go with this stuff. So, uh, yeah, the definitely got first, a... Jonathan. That's the, <laughs> yes. Yeah. There we go. The meek inherit the earth, all of the, the above. Yes. Yeah, um, I was I was pretty I was pretty proud of my um the amount of uh uh work that I was able to do on the workout, but yeah, it's just not even close to a lot of the like monstrously ripped dudes who come to my gym. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you would kick my butt. So, I mean, however that's <laughs> probably in better shape than I am. <laughs> especially after a month of new baby stress eating right so. <laughs> yes yeah well you know at least like with uh you know new babies you get to work it all off and you know the the breastfeed oh wait no that's that's your wife who's who's doing that yeah that's the thing <laughs> i have less of an excuse <laughs> um well uh this in god's providence today's episode uh is very related to current events uh in fact, about half of the content for this episode we wrote before uh, Putin invaded Ukraine just a few days ago, and the other half, I think, was written, you know, afterwards. So, and it just so happens we're talking about praying for people in positions of authority so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so just that's, this is a disclaimer for people watching this or listening to this in the future that, uh, we might talk a little bit about that in ways that a week from now will sound quite outdated, uh, <laughs> yes. depending on how events unfold. But uh, um, 
I think it's cool. I don't know. In God's providence, I think it's cool that we're going to get to have this conversation now uh, at this pivotal time in world history. I, I think it will be a pivotal time in world history. I kind of hope it won't be because it probably is bad if it's pivotal. But uh, Right. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I think maybe, well, okay, we should read the verse. Well, maybe a bit of context for for new listeners here as well. You've heard that we're the John 315 podcast, and um, we're actually in the middle of a series of podcasts talking about um, uh, theology and politics. Um, You know, how do we make sense of like politics and culture and government and authority and kind of these ideas um, through a Christian lens and specifically through a biblical lens? Like, what does the Bible have to actually, you know, what, what does it actually say about these topics? And so, as you were alluding to, Jeremy, today, we, um, we've kind of gone through a number of them of talking about the government. We just recently tackled Romans 13 um, and talking about taxation. And uh, now we're kind of on to some of the um, maybe less explicitly political issues, but still nonetheless related to uh, um, authority. And so, in that case, we're actually talking about um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, 1 and 2. So, uh, actually, Jeremy, why don't you, you read it for us here? Um, and then maybe we can get into it a little bit. Yeah, totally. So goes like this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pretty good stuff. Um, yeah, no. And, also seems pretty straightforward, right? You know, it's well, like... one would think so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, this is the John three fifteen podcast, and we tackle the misunderstood Bible verses. It does seem fairly straightforward, but um, you know, the nations do rage against God and His Word, right. and um, <laughs> well, we have a spicy Twitter take or two to share with you about this verse. And again, funny enough, it, it comes on the heels of current events. Uh, but let's be clear, this is actually before the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, this is something I found before uh, before that happened. And uh, it's a tweet from Franklin Graham. That's uh, the famous Billy Graham's son, uh, who I don't really know that much about him. I think he was kind of like a Trump supporter guy in some ways. So he kind of drew the ire of a lot of progressives over the yeah. years. And so I think he just people get mad at everything he says for no good reason. Um, and I, I frankly don't know much about him, frankly. Yeah, um, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, he, he, sort of, he sort of is the uh, catches a lot of secondhand Trump derangement syndrome. Yes, yes. Um, so I don't necessarily, you know, uh, endorse his opinions on politics. I don't know the, his opinions. So, But I do think this is a very good take that he threw here on Twitter. And, and it goes like this. And we'll put this in the show notes so you can follow the um, insanity uh, <laughs> if you would like. Um, So Franklin Graham tweets this. Pray for President Putin today. This may sound like a strange request, but we need to pray that God would work in his heart so that war could be avoided at all cost. May God give wisdom to the leaders involved in these talks and negotiations, as well as those advising them. Man, what man. an awful! I I hate that. That's just so evil that he would say such a thing. I'm so mad. No, I was about to say, Amen, Franklin. That's that's some good stuff right there. Yeah. yeah like and, what's, and, what could possibly be objected to? Hey, war is bad. Let's pray that we don't have war, right? It's, I know, right? Like the most, like yeah, uh, 
<laughs> just like manifestly obviously good thing so okay john i'm hoping that you might be able to adopt like a snarky sneer of a voice if you could read like some of these replies um in the most uh <laughs> I'll, I'll see i'll see what i can come up with here so there's a Twitter user who uh, replies to this this great tweet by Franklin uh, Franklin Graham. Uh, it goes by the name. Is it cu- curious? Curious? Cur- like it might be a- curious, like Lord, but I don't know. It's spelled like curious, but with a K. Yeah, it, well, that, that's interesting. But anyway, so they, you know, this this individual uh, quotes back of just the fact that you would ask for prayer and then add. It may sound like a strange request. Let's us all know the type of Christian you are, Franklin. My prayer is that the Lord would soften your heart and that you would be able to love like Jesus before you hurt another soul. (laughs) It's like, imagine airdropping into this conversation without the context. And of course, there's this whole, there's, without getting into it, there's this whole context of like, you know, the Russian collusion narrative. Uh, with the Trump administration, right? So, like, making any sort of claim that maybe we shouldn't go to war with Russia is seen by some people as, like, a uh, a statement of support for Putin. And keep in mind, this was before the Ukrainian invasion, so this was even really before there was any sort of excuse for this kind of, like, comment, you know? I, don't, yeah. I still don't think there is now. We should still be praying that we would not have war, but, you know, even though there's already one right. <laughs> in Ukraine. Uh Okay, maybe maybe I'll try this next one. You yeah, might yeah, have a yeah. You, you give us me, you but... give us your best snarky voice. <clears throat> All right, this is Twitter user Jane, and these aren't their handles. Like, there's like an at sign, or whatever. we're not the cringe posts guys. We're not experts on uh, on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but this person, yeah, goes yeah. By the, Jane. The, the fact the fact that what we have is like copy and pasted plain text in our show notes, <laughs> is, <Yes. laughs> you know, is is evidence that we are not professionals at doing the react to Twitter thing. <laughs> So we have this Twitter user, Jane, and she replies like this. Have you ever prayed for President Biden with a thinking emoji? You know, like the one that goes like this and is like, oh, yeah, I really got him. huh? (laughs) Makes you think. And then my favorite (laughs) my favorite part of this is that another user replies to this reply with a previous tweet of Franklin (laughs) Graham's from November 2021. And it says this. Pray for President Biden. (laughs) That his eyes would be open to the dangerous advice he is receiving from his staff and cabinet and pray for our nation. And like the thing about this is I don't even know anything about Franklin Graham, but even I could have told you this was like nonsense. Doesn't he do like the prayer breakfast or or something like he's involved in some sort of thing. Billy Graham spoke to like all the presidents and Franklin has also had a, you know, something to do with um, with a lot of that. So I I don't know. Like even I knew that was nonsense. <laughs> yeah, well then we get another Twitter uh user who replies to Franklin Graham here. It goes by the Twitter user I am Gen X and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> is it oh, like is it, are they referencing the song because they're Gen X? They're Twisted Sister. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like Twisted Sister, that was like my de- that was like the the boomers sort of generation. <laughs> okay, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, so the Twitter the, responding to Franklin Graham, he says, "See, as a reverend myself, I would start this prayer for our nation's leaders 
first. Then the peoples most directly impacted for Europe. (laughs) (laughs) He's not going to take it anymore, man. Oh, yeah, he's not going to take it anymore. Okay, then a prayer for your enemies to open their hearts and to seek humility. But I see you and your way. It speaks volumes. (laughs) It speaks volumes like that he's a Christian and wants to pray for peace. Man. Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, so I think it could it could be said quite clearly. I mean, there's at least a few people here who seem to not understand this these verses. I mean, and they're claiming to be Christians. Uh, I mean, this one, I guess Jane didn't claim to be a Christian, but out of these other two, one claimed to be a Christian and one said he was a reverend. It's like, well, um, I don't know. What's wrong with these verses? Are they not super straightforward? Like, <laughs> um, So anyways, then lastly... Uh, this is actually how this came to my attention. That we have uh, political pundit Michael Knowles, who came in with the right take, and I don't actually agree with Michael Knowles a lot. So I, you know, I'm I'm happy about this though. Uh, and he comes in with this take. He says the libs freaking out over this tweet are demonstrating their complete ignorance of even the most basic aspects of Christianity. Well said, Michael Knowles. I agree. Uh, this is not a difficult one. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I think that this is one of those, uh, the nation's rage sort of things, right? It's like, man, you're just really mad that we would pray for peace, huh? (laughs) So, you know, um, Paul does command us rather directly to pray for all people. And, uh, I just want to say, you know, checkmate lefty Christians. I think Franklin Graham's mansion just got 500 square feet bigger. (laughs) Yes. So. <laughs> yes, for his like what might be, you know, a bit of a virtue signal of tweeting like, praying for peace. <laughs> no, but but uh, uh you know, jokes like you're aside, over there in the dinky shack, right? And Franklin Graham's partying it up. Like you remember that song? Everyone would always play the the big house song. Is it by Audio Adrenaline? Uh, um, oh, I, I, you, Audio Adrenaline does have a version of that. I don't know if they wrote the song or not, but it, it's like it, the come and go with me to my father's house and everyone's yeah, it's playing like a, football and eating food. Yeah, big, That's big like house. That's like Franklin Graham. Like <laughs> everyone's going to Franklin's house. I mean, I know it's the song about the father's house, but the Bible talks about us having, you know, many rooms in heaven or whatever, you know? So Frank, Franklin's going to have this big, big, big crib and we're all going to go hang out there and it's going to be full of like kings that he prayed for who came to Christ. Right. And yeah. They're like, they're, they are like, you know, thanking Franklin for teaching the gospel and all these progressive Christians be like, Hey man, is it okay if I come over? Like, you know, can, can we, can we party with you guys too? <laughs> so yeah. Uh, um, and uh, it's a little bit unfair to to make the claim that, you know, that represents all of progressive, uh, you know, Christians or, or just progressives in general. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of anti-war progressives. Well, so let's go ahead and um, start doing our usual thing of digging into the context and uh, kind of meat of this verse here and uh, start asking some questions and seeing, you know, if we can tease out really the meaning of what this verse Uh, means, you know, other than the, I I guess, sort of on its face value, pretty obvious interpretation of like, pray for all people and people in authority. So, but but let's really kind of ask some questions about it and see if we can kind of tease out some, some deep meaning here. 
so maybe the first question we could start with is, you know, who are the people who are supposed to be praying? So there's this command to pray for all people, but, but like, like who is it that is actually being commanded to pray? Um, uh, it's and, even in the passive, like the passive conjugation, it says prayers be made for all people. Oh like, yes. Yeah. yeah even better. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, okay, great. But who makes the prayers, right? <laughs> uh, do the prayers need to make themselves? What's the, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I mean, the, the context doesn't make it extremely clear, uh, what we're talking about, like who's doing the prayers. Um, on the one hand, that might make it sound like perhaps it's not that important. Uh, it's just talking about all Christians. But I think we do need to consider that this is First Timothy that we're talking about. Uh, and we've done, I think, just one episode on the pastoral epistles before. It was when we did the root of all evil. Um, mm -hmm. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I don't think we talked about First Timothy in general that much in that episode. Sure. Um, well, maybe could you give us may a little bit of background on the first the letter of first timothy uh, yeah sure you know, maybe well, to help us understand yeah specifically i think um uh the context of first timothy is less important than the fact that it's one of the pastoral epistles so that's what we call first and second timothy and titus uh, those three books of paul uh, were all written to pastors uh, to church leaders two of them obviously to timothy and one of them to titus and they share a lot of like the same content or similar ideas phrased in different ways. Um, but uh, yeah, they're, they're very personal letters in a lot of ways. In 1 Timothy, for example, Paul tells Timothy that, uh, that he should drink some wine because of his stomach instead of just drinking water. So there's a whole like medical thing there. Um, <laughs> yeah, pastoral medical advice. <laughs> yeah, like it's, yeah. And of course, there's there's all these commands repeatedly to, you know, teach these things, study this stuff, pay attention to this and to this and to that, uh, you know, keep yourself pure, be holy. And then there's a lot of uh, stuff, not specifically about Timothy and Titus, about how leaders should conduct themselves, but also how does the church get ministered to? What does an orderly church look like? And what does corporate worship look like? And I think in particular, when we're talking about prayer, in a book like First Timothy, what immediately comes to mind is corporate prayer uh, when we gather together to worship. Um, the context doesn't explicitly say this anywhere, and we will eventually read past this um, to verses 3 through 7 of this chapter and bring in the whole context. But I think for now, it's just important to point out that it doesn't really say directly. But there are some clues if we go later in the chapter, skip down to verse 8. Um, so we have the first verse saying, you know, all these supplications, prayers, etc., should be made for all people. And then in verse eight, after explaining why Paul thinks that should happen, he kind of concludes and starts a new section saying this. Uh, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then he'll go on to say, likewise, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So then he switches topics to, um, you know, something that the women in the congregation need to do. But I think the point is he, he pivots from prayer to, to talking about other stuff. But notice that he says, in every place, the men should pray uh, without anger or quarreling. And then a few verses later, when he's still talking about women in the church, he says that a woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness. Uh, so we're, when I'm looking at this passage, I see that it's talking about 
anger, quarreling, and women learning and how they ought to learn. And these are all topics which evoke the relationships of one church member to another. This is the sort of thing that's happening when the church comes together, it seems. I mean, to learn from someone, you have to have another person to learn from, right? mm -hmm. to point out the obvious. But it might not necessarily be talking only about, say, Sunday worship, like a service where everyone's coming together to do the Lord's Supper and to hear a sermon and stuff, because it says in every place the men should pray. So I don't know that it's conclusive, but I, I think this passage is hinting at Paul saying, like, um, this could include something similar to what we would call like a small group or a Bible study today. Just when whenever believers gather together, you should make prayers for all people. Um, and also women should learn quietly in submission, right? That you should not be angry with one another. You should not quarrel with one another. That seems to be what makes the most sense to me. I, I mean, it's a little bit of conjecture, but I think it's fair conjecture. So... I don't know. Just throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I, 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 I think that there is, like you're saying, kind of these clues um, about that at the very least, a lot of the other discussion is seems to be couched in interpersonal terms. Um, and so at the very least, even if it's not specifically like celebrating the Lord's Day or, you know, something like that, there is this notion of the 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 context of these supplications and prayers is not like oh i by myself for my you know devotional life this is specifically the focus that i should have but that it is the the interpersonal kind of prayer that that people would experience of like gathering together to pray and so um i so it, basically what i'm saying is i think i buy it jeremy that i'm i'm <laughs> i'm hearing you that that the purpose of it is these are are christians who are gathering together for one purpose or another, but part of that gathering is this urging to pray. Totally. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you agree <laughs> um, because I am, I do feel like I'm a little bit out on a limb, but it's important to point out, I think um, that there is a difference between reading this passage as, Hey, I should go pray for the president versus, Hey, it is the task of the church collectively to ensure that prayers be made for all. Right. Um, and the passivity, the passive nature of that verb does seem to take the onus off of each of us as individuals a little bit and put it more on a collective task, right? In the same way that the church as a whole needs to avoid anger or quarreling, um, the church together should pray and we should, you know, be making these, um, these pleasing prayers to God on behalf of other people. So... Well, anyways, that's kind of uh, just a little bit of background to First Timothy that, that might help center our thinking here. Uh, but more important than who should pray is who should the church pray for? Um, and Well, we I can to... answer that, Jeremy. It says <laughs> all people. And as we know on this podcast, all means all in sort of the exhaustive, entirely inclusive sense. So, like, clearly Paul means we should bust out the phone book. And just start going down one by one, making sure we're hitting every single person that that the church should be praying for them by name, right? That's that that's clearly what Paul is saying here. I promise that we don't even try to find these passages. It's just such a frequent like issue in interpreting the Bible, especially Paul. I feel mm -hmm. like um, this whole like all means all thing, and this passage. So a little bit of like a spicy 
side note is this passage is one of the most important ones in the debate about uh, limited atonement. So for those of you who are into the whole Calvinism thing, or you're really into the whole Arminianism thing, we're not going to touch that in this episode. <laughs> we, we probably <laughs> should whole, do an episode on it, but... <laughs> it, I mean, it would, be, it would be great. We might do a second episode on this passage. And then, of course, right. later in First Timothy 2 is the spicy like stuff about women's roles in the church. So this is like a, a whole... This is like a can of worms in a chapter. In the First Bible. Timothy First 2 <laughs> is... There's a lot of really hard to deal with stuff in here <laughs> yeah it's it's spicy we'll just put it that way yeah. um so we're not going to do the whole like you know calvinism arminianism does all mean all kind of thing today not because it's not interesting but because it's not the point of <laughs> what we wanted to talk about yeah, we, it's not we the don't have point time. of the passage at all <laughs> um so uh anyways that being said uh does this mean literally everyone uh it does say all people right so I think we need to look at the whole context. Uh, you know, surprise, surprise, right? Mm -hmm. So if we go into verse 3, uh, Paul will start explaining why we need to make prayers for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. He says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Going on to verse, uh, all the way to verse 7 here. Uh, for there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul says that he was appointed a preacher to the Gentiles, quote unquote, for this, uh, which refers to the verse before where he says, you know, to proclaim this one God and this one mediator that God has appointed for all men, namely Christ Jesus. Um, and I, I think it's interesting to point out that Paul's reasoning why we ought to pray um, for all people, well, first of all, so that they can be saved, but then he, he explains why why this prayer might have the effect of saving people. And his answer is there is one God and one mediator between God and men. And you might be like, huh, that doesn't make sense. What? How does that follow? But then when you get to the end of this section, he talks about being a preacher to the Gentiles. And then it kind of clicks like, oh, yeah, like we have to pray not just for, for God's people, but also for the Gentiles, for those outside the people of God and their rulers, not just them, but the people who represent them as nations. Mm -hmm. um, so since there's just this one God, it follows that, He's not the God only of Jews, but also of Gentiles. And this is a huge theme in Paul. Um, in Romans 3, he asks the question, is God the God of Jews only, or is he not the God of Gentiles also? And then he answers it himself. He says, yes, of Gentiles also, since, and listen to this, God is one. Just like in 1 Timothy 2, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, let me ask you, John, what, what does God as one sound like to you, knowing that Paul is a Jew? <laughs> yes, this, this, this sounds a lot like the, um, the, the, um, I think it's the, you pronounce it the Shema. Shema, yeah. Yeah, is the, the, the prayer that the, that the Jews would 
um, repeat um, comes from I think it's a it's an it's a passage in Deuteronomy, right? It's you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you know that this would be the prayer that that they would say like over and over and over again. It's this very important like in in large part declaration of monotheism, you know, which was in some sense unique to the Jews, um, especially in the ancient world. But it's a very formative in Jewish thought of the importance of like God, like the Lord is one and God is one. You know, there is there is only this one God. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I mean, it's it's a vague phrase in Hebrew, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Some would translate it, the Lord alone, right? So it, it's not just that God is one God, but also that he's a unified God. He's not capricious, right? He's the one God in control of everything, and there's not a plurality of gods fighting about the meaning of the cosmos, right? Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it is a declaration of monotheism, but there's also implications of that monotheism, right? If God is one, then he's the God of everyone, not just the Jews. Um, he's also the God of Gentiles. Yeah. Uh, and and so that's Paul's Old Testament grounding for why we should pray for kings. And it, it doesn't quite click at first to me, but then when you see the whole passage, you're like, oh, I get it. God appointed you a preacher to the Gentiles and so it is really important to Paul that not just Gentiles generically, but specifically those people who rule over them and who represent them uh, are recipients of our prayers. Mm-hmm. Yes, which would, <clears throat> which I could also see as being very important in Paul's mind because of like what you're saying there of the ones who represent them, because there is this notion of like federal headship that kind of floats around in in Paul's discussion. We get kind of some of this in, in Romans and uh, maybe I'm going a little bit too deep here, but I'll, I'll sort of go off on this aside and, and cut me off, Jeremy, if I'm going too far afield. Um, but this, this idea of leaders being representatives of the people whom they are leading. So um, uh, uh, the uh, maybe, maybe one, one way to think about this is, uh, oh, okay, here we go. It's that uh, uh, um, if you look in like first Samuel, when Samuel's talking to the, uh, the people of Israel, right when, you know, he is like anointed Saul to be king over Israel and, and Samuel's kind of giving this farewell address. And one of the things that he says to the people of Israel is, you know, he says, okay, like now that you have this king, like be sure that you like still follow God uh, closely. Um, like, you know, still, still cling to your, 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 um, like covenant with the Lord. Um, and one of the things that he says is it's like, you know, and, uh, if you do so, you know, and if you and your King, like follow the Lord, then it will go well with you. And, uh, you know, but if you and your King don't, and, and, and it's this like linking together almost of the, um, like the, the, the destiny of Israel that it's now, it's now no longer the people of Israel who have this relationship with the Lord, but it's now. Israel mediated through their king has relationship with God. And, and, and it's, it's painful because then you see like in Kings and Chronicles and, you know, later in the history of Israel, that it's, it's the Kings who lead the people of Israel astray, that it's as the leader, they're the ones who like lead the people into idolatry and draw them away from the Lord. Um, And that being sort of like put up against, you know, this notion of, of Jesus being this like, true and you know perfect king kind of like the consummation of kingship that he then leads his people back into right relationship with the lord um and so you know a little bit of an excursus there but i i bring it up because 
I, I can't help but think that maybe that's also floating around in Paul's head here, that that there is this um, notion of of how the the king is the representative of the people before God, and and that's like the way that it functioned in Israel, and that maybe he's leveraging that kind of idea here for the Gentiles also, that their leaders similarly might be representatives, bef- you know, before God for them, that you know. It, it's a, you know if your leader is leading you away from the Lord then you know the people follow you know but perhaps if the leader comes to repentance they can lead the whole people to right relationship with the Lord uh yeah you didn't go too far afield there no need to cut you off because that's exactly that what the worldview of the Israelite monarchy was <laughs> oh well <laughs> there think, we go I mean so and and let's be honest that kind of hits us uh a little weird nowadays and I think I mean, you yes. and I especially, we've made a big deal during the series that we come from like a more libertarian political perspective. So there is this element where I'm like, yeah, whatever. I didn't, this guy doesn't represent me. I didn't choose him. You know? <laughs> I didn't sign up for no king. <laughs> yeah. So 51% of people voted for him, whatever. So that means the 49% don't matter. Like, you know, yeah. And, and I, I actually think that that's very much correct and a good way to look at it. However, at the end of the day, the president of the United States of America is still who he is. Right. <laughs> like there's this element where the Bible does treat things as real simply because they are for all practical purposes real. It's kind of like when we talked about in Romans 13. Yeah. It's like, yeah, Hitler was the quote unquote minister of God over Germany for some period of time. He was an yeah. evil person. He's <laughs> wicked and awful, but still. <laughs> but instituted by God in his sovereignty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and in that episode, we dealt with kind of what are the implications of that, right? But, but nevertheless, right, uh, it is the fact that he was, in fact, you know, um, he had command of the armies, right? So he was the guy, right? right. And in the same way nowadays, I think it's funny that uh, in our nation, there's a lot of battles over you know, like election integrity and stuff. And I, I find it funny, um, back in 2016, when Trump won the presidency, you had this like hashtag, not my president thing. And at the time, I just remember thinking, it's like, well, you know, about that. Um, yeah, he kind of is, though. <laughs> it's like, like, you know, it's like whether you like it or not, that's kind of just the way it is, you know. And then in 2020, Biden won. And now there's questions about election integrity. And, and you know, it's like, the same thing arises again. Like Biden's not the real president. It's like, well, he kind of is. is. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to tell you, dude. Uh, Like, and and even if he cheated, like, okay, like let's grant the entire argument for the sake of granting it. Um, Not taking a stand one way or another on this podcast. We don't want to be taken off uh, uh, Spotify after all. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, but the point being that like, even if it's completely true that he cheated it at the end of the day, who commands the army? It's right. like, yeah, it's like he's he's still sitting in the Oval Office. Like. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. He's in the White House, like, yeah, um, for better or for worse. So yeah. it's funny that people like have this, and 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 it's not that I disagree with like the the um, shining a light on perhaps political corruption. I think if that's your your take, you should you should go with it, and and um, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying it's like sinful or wrong to to make that claim. I'm just saying that, like, for all practical intents and purposes, the guy who's commanding the army and uh, who is issuing executive orders and sitting in the Oval Office and whose portrait is being drawn or painted by some dude so it can be put up in, you know, in public schools across America. I mean, that's that is the guy who is the president. Sorry to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it's funny. I, I don't know. That's um, 
a good point, a good excursus, I think. Um, and if we were to be overtaken by, by uh, I mean, this wouldn't happen practically, but if Putin decided to just invade the USA and take it over, he would kind of be, you know, the president. I mean, like, that's just, <laughs> that's the reality of history is conquering and taking over. And now there's a new guy with a new, you know, a new plan. And um, for better or worse, mm -hmm. I mean, you can't just pretend it's not a thing. So I, I think that's the point I'm trying to make. And the Bible yeah. treats it as a real thing, at least for all practical purposes, you know, so. Well, anyways, that excursus aside, I'm sure there will be plenty more mm -hmm. <laughs> on this topic. Um, we should go back to the text uh, when it says, you know, um, all people. So I think what they're trying, what we're trying to say is, you know, all meaning all, does it mean all? Well, I think it does mean all in this case, but I think it's it's more going along the lines of all kinds of people should be included in the church's prayer. It's yeah. not that the church needs to pray for every single individual, all six plus billion, every time we come together. It's just that we should never be excluding any kind of person from our intercessions to God. Right. Uh, there's no category of person that's excluded. And whoever we're aware of might be, you know, who, who do we know who needs prayer? That might be kind of the point here, right? Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be barred from it. Yes, yes. It's it's much more of a we should not think um, our prayers above anyone. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, if, if it matters, uh, if being aware of the person and their need for prayer is kind of the, the thing that should prompt us to pray, which I would argue is, that's just kind of common sense, I think, um, then it kind of is obvious uh the people who rule over us are some obvious targets of our prayers right yeah uh, whether they like it or not they're getting some prayer because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they make a lot of consequential decisions so you know i think that's Certainly. why he says all people and then he highlights these uh um kings and all who are in high positions so and that term high position so we have kings and then we see this this uh other term um, it's a generic term in Greek for someone who has superiority. It's like it's used in other contexts to talk about just being better than someone at something like you're superior. Right. So to have this high position, it's gen generic. It's like someone who has superiority over you. Um, but uh, but it's it's not talking about like a husband over his wife or even probably like a master over his slave. It's talking about someone with some level of political control. Um but it doesn't have to be the king. It could be a lesser ruler, say like Pontius Pilate, you know, a provincial ruler or a governor or something like that. You know, would um, like a would like a judge or someone like that be taken up in this kind of category? Like anybody who sort of has broad political influence? Oh, I certainly think so. I mean, if they can put you in jail, then they definitely have a high position. <laughs> so, yeah, anybody who can um, who wields the sword, we might say. Sure. Uh, and even if judges don't literally wield the sword, they certainly do, you know, symbolically. Mm -hmm. uh, so just, yeah, having a just king and, and having a just judge, governor, etc. That is especially important. It's, it's more important than any other person um, because the king or, or even someone of lesser authority controls others. And yeah. like you were saying, John, like you were alluding to, with the Israelite worldview of the monarchy and really, frankly, the worldview of most people until the last couple centuries uh, of world history, 
yeah, like the king represents the people. And as goes the king, so goes the nation. Um, yeah. It's more complicated than that, but at least on on like a principled level, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, there is a sort of um, spiritual leadership that kings and people in high positions have, you know, whether we like it or not. Right. Well, and most of like, most of... Uh, folklore <laughs> most of like the the tradition of fairy tales and you know um just like good stories throughout <laughs> like the western tradition like presuppose this you know it's like you you go see um some movie about a king man i'm trying to think of like a good example um just one off the top of my head i didn't like think of any ahead of time um like king arthur or something like that <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> like the Knights of the Round Table, like that whole story presupposes that like you need to have a king who is just, you know, and even if we would analyze it a little bit and say, OK, well, the king, like who is he to call the shots and he makes bad decisions and stuff? Well, maybe so. Maybe we could question the authority. But at the end of the day, um, you know, having a king who likes likes christianity at least if not outright is a christian is a positive thing <laughs> like it has to be considered a positive thing it's it's more consequential than any other random person knowing christ because the king knowing christ or at least tolerating christians um, will mean a lot more people become christians yeah and and i could and i could also see um and maybe this is a slight topic change but um i i i could also see the the specific highlighting of of the kings and people in high uh you know people in high positions um being the clarification of the all um <clears throat> because it, you know one of the things i was saying before is that you know we shouldn't think um our prayers above anybody you know that we shouldn't be like leaving people out and i could almost see especially in um the early you know centuries of the church um, when there was a great deal of persecution that, you know, it would be the kings and people who are in high positions that, you know, you might have some bitterness and resentment toward. It's like, you know, I, I might not necessarily have bitterness toward random Gentile McGee over there who's, you know, buying and selling in the market. But, you know, random Gentile McGee's king is the one who, you know, just killed my bishop by, you know, throwing him to the lions or something like that. And you know so i could see this this particular thing of that all people and then it's like no i really do mean all like even those people who are throwing you in jail even those people who are you know doing you harm like they're also the kind of people that you should be praying for too and maybe that's a little bit speculative but i, I can i can almost see that that maybe being part of what paul's talking about here as well it, or that's part of how i've always understood it at least well, I mean, that would just be riffing off of Jesus, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. I mean, if someone's persecuting you, it implies they have some level of power, even if it's just social power, but it certainly includes people in, in high positions of authority. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, why would you need to be reminded to pray specifically for kings unless there was a tendency to maybe not want to? <laughs> right. Well, you know, like the, the early church was dealing with still the zealotry movement, you know, that which was seeking to overthrow uh, secular Rome and institute a Jewish, you know, uh, theocracy. 
uh, and Jesus spoke against that, right? And was even kind of in his own disciples trying to get them, you know, uh, disabused of this idea that they were going to take the kingdom by force. Oh. And I think having this like comment, you got to pray for those so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life is, you know, uh, something that the church probably needed to be reminded of uh, to to avoid some of those, I guess, negative inclinations to, to the zealot movement. Um, and there's a whole history to that. We don't need to get into here, but uh, but you see some of that in the Gospels for sure. And I'm sure that was still going on kind of a few decades later. Um, you know, it's not like the whole, <laughs> not like all the Jews became Christians right away, um, or that when they did, they immediately understood a full Christian worldview. So, right. so it's important. Um, yeah. So I, I think another thing about this targeting of kings as like a specific group to single out, you know, we mentioned that it's important to have a just king for a lot of reasons. But something that a lot of people don't know in the evangelical church, I, I think we really, we spiritualize a lot and we miss the fact that practically speaking, um, in the physical world, having a king or a, or a ruler who has the church's back is actually a really good thing. Like we, we, we only see the medieval Catholic church allied with like the godless state and, you know, persecuting Martin Luther. That's what we see because we're thinking about this as Protestants. What we're not thinking about is like Constantine converting to Christianity in like what the three hundreds or whenever it was four mm hundreds. -hmm. I don't remember. And yeah, literally 300s. the three hundreds. Thank you. And because Constantine converted to Christianity, we have a well-formulated doctrine of the Trinity that the church has enjoyed it's, for 1700 years. Yes. Yeah, like basically like the council of Nicaea was able to meet because they weren't being like killed. You know, all the bishops weren't being killed off anymore. Right. Yeah. Like there was, they were actually able to sit down and like formalize doctrine, formalize the canon in a way that had been, um, I mean, all of this stuff already existed. It's not like they invented the Trinity then. But Constantine allowing peace for the church um, allowed a, a level of cooperation that was uh, not seen before then. Mm -hmm. And um, and he protected the church. They had sporadic persecution before then, uh, depending on the, the king, right? Well, this, this guy, this emperor, uh, wanted the church to prevail. And... Um, Today, there's a lot of rhetoric, especially if you pay attention to kind of the, you know, the big Eva, the the elite evangelicals. Um, we love to dunk on Tim Keller on this podcast. But, you know, Tim Keller, Russell Moore, um, David French, all these guys, right? <laughs> they need a little bit of dunking in their they lives. Need, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, they're, they've been writing lots of articles lately about Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism. It's like a scary term, right? And it's almost like they're against the idea of having a nation full of Christians who want to be ruled by an approximately Christian ethical code. And I don't understand how any Christian could have a problem with that. Like, you think America's better now? Like, what's, what is wrong with you? Like, like, you think, I don't know, you think transgender bathrooms in public schools is better than what we had in the 1980s? I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, like, it's like, like you, you, you think our cultural, like we've 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 like grown in the last like 20 years that like man our like our culture has just gotten so much better and uh, it's like improved the quality of everybody's lives and it's just really weird like um again it's almost it's like a, a narrow-minded view of church history where we only see 
the negative elements of, of a church and state that were, were allied. And we don't see the fact that like, at least having Christianity be tolerated to a strong degree, it was a huge boon to the church. Um, and it came with its drawbacks, uh, but, but like it needed to happen. And, uh, and so I'm not necessarily advocating that we turn America into a Christian theocracy or anything like that. I just like, as a general idea, at least not having people in charge who hate our guts that's a good thing. That's not like we shouldn't have a persecution complex about this. Like we we don't want a government that throws us in prison for for not supporting transgender bathrooms, okay? And there's a lot of people who want to do that right now in positions of authority. Like it's anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I mean not least that even um the uh uh even if you think about it in these terms where it's if you have someone who is a Christian who is, you know, if you're if your king converts, uh, you know, and becomes a believer, it's like like that is that is fabulous, because even if they're still going to do terrible, you know, awful things, it's like at least you can appeal to God with them. It's like, you know, you you they, they have now acknowledged a higher authority. <laughs> like than themselves and so it's you, you know it's it's now now i treat with you king and it's like i can i can uh uh appeal to god's authority over you now as a way of you know maybe trying to get you to stop doing terrible evil things where it's like i mean if your king's in a rebellion against god it's like well i mean you know certainly still claim god's authority over him but it's like i mean he probably won't listen to you well, yeah, that's the whole thing with like the Exodus, right? Pharaoh's like, I don't recognize your God. I am God, dude. Like, mm. <laughs> and that's why God, you know, kicked his butt. But the the point being like, yeah, I would rather almost like live in a nation where they believed in a different religion, but they were serious about it. So long as that religion didn't say they need to kill me right? as for being a Christian. And even if I'm not the dominant culture, at least the person in charge thinks he's he's being held accountable for what he does. Yeah. You know, he's not a God. Um, and when you just have like atheistic, um, kind of this like neoliberal social order, um, where like tolerance is the only virtue and, and diversity. And there's no consideration of like what is right and wrong, what is virtuous and what is not. And, yeah. um, and that's sort of like, yeah, I guess this like post-World War II consensus <laughs> is what they call it, you know, um, in the West is, uh, um, it's damaging. We'll just, I'll leave it there. Uh, it's not good. I would rather have rulers who, uh, at least acknowledge God in some way. Um, however, however much the faults of like civic religion are, you know, like a non-specific non-Christian theism, you know, like saying under God and the pledge of allegiance, for example, it's not a very Christian statement because Christ isn't in there. But it sure is better than what we have now. I mean, <laughs> like it sure is better than just not recognizing a deity at all. So, yeah, it's better than the state thinking it's the deity, which is <laughs> yes. what we have now. <laughs> yes. Well, we've been centering uh, this discussion talking about like why Paul might be singling out kings. Um, but let's get specific and look back at the text, because I think the text is talking about some of the things we're highlighting. Uh, it, it points out two major reasons why we ought to pray for kings. And let's maybe like hit them in turn here. Okay. Uh, and this first one is uh, immediately uh, it says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified 
in every way. So that's the immediate reason why we should pray for kings that Paul gives. So because we want to be uh, left alone, we want to be peaceful and quiet. Yeah. And um, it, I mean, to me, it immediately makes me think of tranquility. Like you're free of conflict, right? It's not like you're never playing any loud music necessarily. It's not what it means by quiet. Um, it means, you know, free of conflict, uh, happily in submission to an authority that's not trying to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, everything's orderly, we might say. And uh, this term for quiet is hesuchia in Greek. And uh, there's also a related adjective form. And combined, it's only used six times in the New Testament. So it's not one of those terms. Um, it's not the term used, for example, when Paul tells women to be silent in church in 1 Corinthians 14. That's a different word. Uh, this is like quietude. It's a little different than silence. Um, although similarly to that term silent, this, this term is used in contexts talking about women's, uh, I guess, women's um, posture toward uh, toward authority. So I think that's interesting to point out. I, I mean, let's look at these other uses in the New Testament so we can get an idea of this word um, for quiet. Uh, so first of all, later in 1 Timothy 2, uh, there's this verse that says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, and here it's not saying that the woman can't speak. It's not saying that the woman can't respond. It's a posture. It's an attitude. Again, uh, without getting into the nitty-gritty of 1 Timothy 2, because it's a whole can of worms. I think I think what Paul is saying there is pretty clear. He's talking about the posture, um, submissiveness. That's the idea. Then you also have 1 Peter 3, again, talking about women's roles in the church. He talks about a virtuous wife having the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And in 1 Peter 3, it uses the example of Sarah, Abraham's wife, as a woman who had a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you've ever read Genesis, Sarah talks a lot in Genesis. <laughs> and she actually rebukes Abraham and gets kind of annoyed at times. And mm -hmm. I mean, she's actually quite a dynamic character in, in the book of Genesis. Um, and so again, the point of quiet is not silence here. Uh, it's talking about the, the posture of one's spirit. And Peter even says it, it's a beauty. It's an inner beauty um, of one's spirit. And God sees it as very precious. Um, but it's about posture, not volume, we might say, right? Uh, so those are passages concerning women. Uh, then 2 Thessalonians 3, no, uh, talking about people who are working for a living now, it says, uh, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So in this case, um, instead of the posture of one who goes about uh, gossiping and being a busy body, uh, go to work and shut up. And provide for your family, is what Paul is saying. <laughs> stop freeloading and stop wasting other people's time. Um, the ideal life that Paul presents in this passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, it's a great one. Maybe we'll get to it someday. I love that passage. Is is uh, to, you know, like not every Christian should be endeavoring to cause trouble the way that Paul often does when he goes from town to town. You know, he's saying it's actually 
totally a good thing for Christians to just, you know, put your head down to the grindstone and do your work and feed your family and mm. shut up, <laughs> you know, like not in the sense of never talking, but in the sense of having this posture of being content with where you are, yeah. right? Um, being in submission to uh, whoever your employer is, right? Whoever is paying you to do your work um, or even a, a master, right? If you're in the position of being a slave. And then lastly, uh, the, the final context, not a whole lot we can get out of this one, but just to mention it for completeness sake, Acts 22, verse 2, uh, Paul speaks to the crowd in the Hebrew language, which is what they weren't expecting him to speak in, and then it mentions that the crowd becomes more quiet. Uh, so there's another use of that term. I don't think we could quite get a lot out of that one. but So that gives you an idea of kind of the range of this term. It's, it's used more for peace and tranquility and free of conflict um in submission these are the kinds of like contexts we see hesuchia being used in uh and i think that that uh that it's that's going to help us understand what paul's talking about here for sure mm -hmm. i mean there's there's other passages in the bible that talk about this like this idea of you know, so we pray for kings. Why? So that they won't bother us, right? <laughs> so that the church won't be in turmoil with persecution. Um, and it reminds me of Romans 12, which we talked about recently um, because of your, your sermon, John, when you talked about, you know, living peaceably with all is in that, that passage. But mm -hmm. it's interesting that if, Paul says, if possible, so far as it belongs all. to you or so <laughs> yeah. far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Yeah, and you know, with the conclusion being that it's like, you know, try your best, but you know, sometimes people will not have peace. And if, you know, you know, but but you know, don't basically don't don't let it be because of you that there's no peace, you know, but if there's something you can do to be living at peace with people, you should be doing it. Yeah. And and it's know, not a given, which might explain why Paul tells us to pray for it. Right. Yeah. It, it, it also makes me think of even later in Romans 13 when we're, you know, told that, uh, uh, you know, you know, sort of Paul's whole discussion is to like, you know, live in submission and, or, you know, to, to these, you know, governing authorities and kind of in part what he's talking about is like, cause if you don't, they're going to punish you guys. So like, you know, you know, don't poke the bear, but, you know, is sort of, you know, part, part of what he's like talking about there. And so it's very much this like, you know, you don't, you know, don't try, you know, don't attract the ire of these leaders and, you know, don't be stirring up trouble with your neighbors and, uh, uh, you know, but rather be like seeking this like peaceful, like low conflict sort of existence with people. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, I've got some conflict with my son in the other room now. Crying again. Um, let's hope he can be uh, quieted. <laughs> hopefully he can live a peaceful and, and tranquil life <laughs> yeah. yeah or peaceful and tranquil night at least so yeah so like there's this concept of of um you know we should not want to be perturbed by the authorities we want to just be able to do our thing right and um yeah like th there is this folly that that some people almost like idolize or idealize persecution. They think of it as like a like you're really a, a good Christian when you're being persecuted, and I don't think that's what Paul wants. Now, if you're going to be persecuted for Christ, then that's blessing, right? That's a a blessing to suffer for Christ. 
But I mean, at some point, the church needs to grow. Right? And that's going to necessitate that the king is not able to persecute it forever. Right. Um, and so we should want to be unperturbed. We should want to just do our thing. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, even more ideally, the church conquers the culture and, you know, people submit to Christ left and right. But at least if that's not happening, we can pray that, that we would be allowed to do our thing. Um, and funny enough, I, I mean, the majority culture doesn't need to be explicitly Christian for the church to be at peace. Um, like, I, I can think of lots of historical examples. I mean, the, the obvious one that comes to mind would be just the church in the early centuries. They weren't always being persecuted, even though the church was not, not the majority culture. Some emperors and kings punished them and others didn't. It wasn't like a solid 300 years of just constant killing of Christians. <laughs> That's a, a, a common misconception. And I'm wondering if you can think of any any examples um, of other times. I mean, America was not, uh, I would say, majority evangelical Christian um, like in the 1990s. But I don't think there was any yeah. form of like persecution whatsoever. Like, yeah. And I mean, even now, largely, there isn't any, at least in the U.S., there really isn't a lot of actual kind of persecution against Christians. It's like, sure, I like uh, the majority culture certainly hates us. And it seems to be kind of be going in the direction of increasing hostility toward the church. But I mean, even right now, it's like people aren't being killed. Nobody's being thrown in jail, at least not here in the U.S., um, you know, like that's not really happening even currently. And I, I think it's pretty fair to say that the vast majority of the people living in this country aren't like true followers of Christ. Well, sure. I mean, but instead we have people infiltrating the church and trying to argue for, you know, non-Christian positions within the church. I think that's kind of the preferred mode of, you know, persecution. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't see it this way, but I definitely see the government thinking it has the right to command churches not to meet as a form of persecution because the Bible commands that we do meet. And so, I mean, for quite a long time in Washington state, it was illegal to worship Christ uh, corporately the way that I would say the Bible demands we do. So I definitely think that counts. Um, now, is it North Korea persecution? No, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound worse than it actually is. Um, I would say we have entered an era, though, where like genuine Christian practice is not always sanctioned by the authorities as something that we can do. Um, now, in, in, yeah, again, in practice, yeah, in practice, of course, they weren't going around doing a whole lot of, um, you know, <laughs> arresting people or whatever. Uh, but there were a few instances I know of in Canada where they did that. And that's yeah. not all that far away from us in terms of not just geography, but also laws and culture. Um, so worth considering <laughs> at the very least they, they commanded us to whether they enforced it or not is another matter. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, but, but you still raise a good point that even now, like the level of toleration of Christianity is far above, <laughs> uh, above, um, you know, what the early church was dealing with. Uh, and we should be thankful for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is in a culture that is pretty anti-Christian at this point. Uh, even even the nominal Christians are fairly anti-Christian, I would say, many of them. So 
we're doing pretty good for ourselves. And that kind of proves that you don't need Constantine. <laughs> you don't need like the Holy Roman Empire for the church to just be unperturbed, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but there's also the other side of the coin, which is like, even in a culture that's nominally Christian, uh, the true church may be at odds with the state. I mean, you've got Israel persecuting the prophets, throwing Jeremiah in a cistern and all that, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. literally Israel. It's an actual theocracy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, or, you know, even this is like uh, uh, not long after the Reformation, you have, uh, uh, you know, Protestants living in, you know, Catholic-controlled areas in Europe being burned at the stake, um, you know, and, and vice versa, Catholics living in Protestant areas uh, being treated pretty horribly, too. Uh, you, know, you know, not to say that the Catholics were uniquely terrible in this whole affair, but... Um, and then there's the Anabaptists. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah, it, basically everybody loved killing the Anabaptists back then. Uh, yeah. they really, they really got the short end of the stick on that one. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know, some of them were asking for it. <laughs> did I just say that? <laughs> you, you did say that out loud. Yes. I don't actually advocate this, by the way. <laughs> Good clarification. In case, in case it doesn't get edited out. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, you know, even like Bonhoeffer getting thrown in prison in Nazi Germany. It's like you know, Nazi Germany was nominally Christian. And it's like, you know, the whole state church apparatus there basically got co-opted and, you know, but you had true followers of Christ who were being persecuted by that regime too. Very true. Yeah. Well, you know, what all this reminds me of is, um, and just like everything, you know, I'm always talking about Justin Martyr. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this all reminds me of Justin Martyr. Um, this is just like off the top of your head, right? Is right. There... I definitely didn't like research this or anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, Do you know so... any good like Justin Martyr quotes maybe that you could like bring up that are on this topic, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Justin Martyr was a, a martyr. That's where the, the uh, <laughs> it's actually well, not where the term comes from. It's a, it's a title that was given to him because it comes yeah. from the Greek word for to witness. Um, so his last name was not Martyr. Uh, but it would be pretty it'd be pretty <laughs> awkward if uh it's if they if we called him justin martyr like not because he got killed but you know just for like some other reason it's like I he like died quietly at 85 you know but we still just call him justin martyr anyway <laughs> yeah so so he uh was kind of like the early um i don't know if the earliest apologist for the faith but he was one of the earliest um who specifically wrote to secular rulers, so not just writing for the church, but uh, so he he endeavored to to make uh, apologetics for the faith. But he it's it's important to understand how he did it, and and I think this is a great read. We'll put it in the show notes, a link to where you can read Justin Martyr's first apology online. This is circa like 155 A.D. This is early in the church. Like people are still around who knew a guy who knew John the Baptist, you know. Like this is early on and um, and he doesn't just defend the faith, but interestingly, he tries to correct misunderstandings and lies specifically that might be provoking rulers toward hating Christians or wanting to persecute them. So he targets his message not just for their conversion, but also for just to win their favor in terms of, you know, hey, 
you don't have to kill us by the way <laughs> you know? um, it's it, it it's it's okay even if you don't like accept you know christ but like maybe please just stop killing us yeah <laughs> if you're gonna at least you know do that then we'll be cool right um but here's some here's some quotes from it and i'll try to skip around so we don't spend too much time but but listen to the strategy that justin martyr uses here uh so he says, when you hear that we look for a kingdom, you rashly suppose that we mean something merely human, but we speak of a kingdom with God, as is clear from our confessing Christ when you bring us to trial, though we know that death is the penalty for this confession. For if we looked for a human kingdom, we would deny it in order to save our lives and would try to remain in hiding in order to obtain the thing we look for. But since we do not place our hopes on the present order, we are not troubled by being put to death, since we will have to die somehow in any case. We are, in fact, of all men, your best helpers and allies in securing good order, convinced as we are that no wicked man, no covetous man or conspirator or virtuous man either, can be hidden from God, and that everyone goes to eternal punishment or salvation in accordance with the character of his actions." So here you see Justin Martyr saying, like, hey, you might have heard that we believe in this kingdom. And so maybe you think that we're going to overthrow you once we gain enough power. That's a misunderstanding. God's kingdom doesn't work that way. We confess Christ, who died at the hands of authorities instead of overthrowing them. And in fact, if you uh, support our religion, or at least let us do our thing, then we will preach the importance of, of good order and not harming your fellow man and not stealing from him and not killing him and actually you'll secure order in your land that you rule if you let us preach our gospel right see there's this interesting dynamic like they're appealing to the king saying hey like even though you're not a christian trust us you're going to be well off if you take good care of us right so that's an interesting thing to note mm-hmm and later on, he mentions like the Caesar passage, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, which we did a whole episode on. Um, he mentions it as like, hey, we pay taxes. We're not overthrowing the government, right? Yeah. Um, we're not here for that reason. That's not the kind of kingdom we're in. Yeah. And, and he actually gives this great kind of summary statement um, just a little bit farther down in the section. Again, we'll post a link for people. on. We encourage you to read the whole thing. Uh, but he says, you know, uh, uh, if what you say, or if what we say, kind of, you know, this whole uh, pitch that, that he's giving. So it's like, if what we say seems reasonable and, or seems to you reasonable and true, treat it with respect, you know, but if it seems foolish to you, then despise us as foolish creatures, but do not decree the death penalty as against enemies for those who do no wrong. You know, I have said before that you will not escape the future judgment of God if you continue unjust while we cry out. What God desires, let be, let that be done. So again, this idea of like, you know, if if you think we're if you think the pitch is good, great, you know, honor it. And if you think we're fools, then just call us fools, but like don't kill us because we're not doing anything wrong. Yeah. And he specifically points out if a Christian commits a crime that's a genuine crime, you can put him to death. You can do your thing as the civil authorities. So um it's an interesting appeal he makes, and I think it's it's reasonable and also like timely it makes sense he does preach the gospel in there as well and you know there's we're not gonna read the whole thing but uh but he also has this really practical appeal 
um, to leave the church alone, you know, and that's definitely the, the rationale Paul is giving for why we should pray for, Mm -hmm. for these rulers. Well, so that's one reason. Um, but there's another reason that we haven't talked about really yet. There's the practical aspect that we can lead peaceful, quiet lives, but also God desires the salvation of Kings, right? All means all. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, seriously, though, like yes, God yeah. means to save all kinds of people, including kings. Uh, and this is why Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ is the Savior of all people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, and not just any Gentiles, but even their rulers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is kind of part of... Uh, 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 Paul's and, and and we know that this is this can be what Paul is meaning because uh, Paul does like exactly this thing in uh, uh, Acts 26. So um, you know towards the end of Paul's ministry, he's you know uh, like thrown in prison and he sort of variously is uh, you know appears before you know uh, rulers in Judea and one of them is King Agrippa in uh, 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 in in sort of Israel at the time and uh, you know some of you probably know this story in in Acts 26 you know but but Paul is saying you know I consider myself fortunate that it is before you King Agrippa that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently and then you know he goes on from there and uh, you know makes this whole appeal basically to Agrippa to say like, Hey, like you, you should, um, like, you know, let me make this appeal for who Christ is and is like, you know, trying to convince him essentially of, uh, you know, to, to submit to Christ. Um, and, you know, and, and he kind of comes to the conclusion at the end. He says, you know, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I, I know that you believe, you know, and Agrippa said to Paul in, you know, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, you know, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> I just love that. It's one of my absolute favorite moments of Paul's life. Like, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> he's, he's just kind of saying like, yeah, I, I wish that all men could could know this joy in Christ that I know. But also it'd be pretty pretty dang cool if you let me go <laughs> yeah, but i also like you know maybe not these like <laughs> like you know don't get me wrong I'd, li- I'd love for you to be like me i'm not saying i want you in prison though right <laughs> like this little wink right like hey you yeah. can just let me go yeah <laughs> um it's genius paul i mean paul has no issue preaching the gospel out of one side of his mouth and in the other side of his mouth thinking about the practical aspects of how to get the gospel to people, right? Yeah. He's always thinking about how he's going to accomplish these missionary journeys. And throughout Acts, he's playing politics. There's um, there's the moment where he flexes his Roman citizenship so that they don't flog him um, in the prison. And uh, he actually freaks people out because he kind of is like, hey, you know, what you're doing is kind of illegal because I'm a Roman citizen. And so... <laughs> Someone might hear about this if if you flog me, you know. He, he flexes his citizenship. Um, and this is the same guy who says in, I think it's, is it Philippians 3? Um, I think it's Philippians 3 that, that our citizenship is in heaven, right? So, like, this is the same dude who flexes his Roman citizenship. But yeah. That's just the kind of guy Paul was. He was pragmatic-minded when he needed to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he held them accountable for their own law, right? 
in their own like what you know what they were supposed to do so <laughs> um genius and 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 you see in this the same kind of thing that justin martyr was up to it's clear that justin martyr had paid attention to paul because this is the sort of strategy paul used so yeah so you you see this um paul wants king agrippa to become a christian uh he wants people to be saved uh but but there's even like a grander thing here that i think would be easy to miss uh and that would be that that the kings of the earth becoming christians is part of the heavenly kingdom the vision of of uh the end times in revelation uh and this is really cool stuff uh, in Revelation 21, it describes this, this city where God, the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. And then it says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, right? So there's this idea that it's not just that God is saving gentiles now he's also bringing the like multicultural glory of god's creation into this city and this city will reflect all the peoples of the earth all kinds of people and these kings are representatives of their nations these various nations of the gentiles they will bring their glory and honor into it and this is such a huge contrast with earlier in Scripture. In the Old Testament, you see in the Psalms, things like Psalm 2. Uh, why do the nations rage <laughs> and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth. There's that phrase, the kings of the earth, that is used in Revelation 21. Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Um, but in Revelation 21, the kings of the earth bring their glory to the Lord and his anointed. It's, mm -hmm. it's a complete inversion of the previous social order. And then in Psalm 110, you have the Lord will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. But in the heavenly kingdom, you have ki kings entering God's kingdom. Um, and they are... And it even says nothing unclean will enter this kingdom. Anyone who does what is detestable or false will never enter it. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, and that's the verse directly after the, the glory and honor of the nations verse. Um, so these kings are now holy. They're made holy and they bring their glory and honor into the kingdom. And it's welcomed as part of God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's a very different world than when God is promising the Jews that he's going to kill all the people around them who, who threaten them, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's um, amazing what Christ, who is the savior of all people and who is the one mediator between God and men, does for the socio-political order. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I think, I think that's the, uh, maybe, maybe the central piece that we, that we don't really get kind of in the modern day, um, you know, be, because we, we just are, so individualistic about it that it's you know and even the way that we've been talking about it of like oh yeah it's like even even the kings are the kind of people that we would want to be saved um you know it's like the gentiles and you know even the kings and the people in authority but but that there is this notion that like in 
like what Christ is doing by like having his kingdom expand across the world. It's it's not just that like people from all kinds of nations will be converted, but it's like the nations themselves are going to be converted. That it it's not just that like people in these nations and under these rulers are going to become Christians, but that it's like the world is going to become uh, uh, like is going to come under Christ's authority, you know, and and again, like typified in the, the ruler themselves. And so it's like that that's what we should be praying for is, you know, not even just that like individuals would come to know Christ, but that like Christ's kingdom would go everywhere that like the nations would come to Christ. I don't know, man, that sounds cool and all, but I think David French would be upset because that's Christian nationalism. <laughs> we that's that's really what we want we want christian nationalism of every flavor <laughs> we want an american christian nationalism and a canadian christian nationalism and a french christian nationalism and uh <laughs> you know a pakistani christian nationalism <laughs> amen i mean it's one of those it's one of those phrases that that becomes such a buzzword and people get you know for lack of a better word, triggered by it. And it's like, what are we actually saying? Christian nationalism, okay? We want the nations to be Christian. I think people will hear a term like nationalism and they think it means like racism or something, right? And it's like, no, no. Like, okay, I guess the, the correct analogy would be, I like being American, right? I'm American and I'm proud to be American. I don't think it's bad to be a Canadian or to be a Pakistani or to be a Russian even right now. Um, it, it, you know, not great things happening from, from the leadership of Russia, but the Russian nationality is a beautiful thing. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with being whatever nation people are. Um, it's like, I have a wife and I love my wife more than any other wife on the planet. Um, that doesn't mean I think other men should love my wife. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> you know, it's like I have my nation and I'm happy to be a part of it and I'm thankful to God for it. That's all, right? Like, yeah. I'm glad to be the where God put me. And that's like all that nationalism really means. Like, I'm a libertarian, okay? And I don't have a problem with the term nationalism. <laughs> I just have a problem with the state. So <laughs> I guess that's the way I would think of it is like, why does this term have to be so toxic? Um, yeah. The nations will bring their glory into the kingdom. So why would we not want the nations to be Christian? I mean, it seems like Revelation 21 is kind of directly saying they're going to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are we against Revelation 21? Do we not <laughs> want the nations to be Christian? And you don't even mm -hmm. have to be post-millennial necessarily to, to see this as a, as a positive thing. Although it, we are getting into that territory, so maybe it'd be better to cut it off here. <laughs> yeah, before we, we don't want to alienate people too much. Eschatology gets real spicy, but <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Like um, nationalism is in this sense, not in a, you know, ethnocentric or a like, you know, I, I hate everybody else sort of sense, but just in the sense of like, I want what's best for my nation. I love where God has placed me and he placed me here for a reason. And I'm going to pray for those in, in, in charge of me um, that they might be Christian and might lead the nation in a more uh, Godward direction. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I, it's hard for me to believe that any Christian would have a problem with that, but you know, here Apparently we are. Apparently they do. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, um, 
So how do we, yeah, how do we go about actually praying for kings like this, Jeremy? So we, we've talked about maybe why we would want to or why Paul wants us to at least. But, you know, so how, how do we actually go about doing it? So, I mean, one thing is we've, we've sort of uh, uh, made the argument that this prayer is, is something that should be corporate in some sense. It's not just, you know, I myself pray for kings and people in authority, but the church should be doing this activity. But what, what else can we glean from the passage? Yeah, well, I find it interesting that Paul uses four words that are all kind of synonyms for prayer, but with a little different emphasis. Um, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Um, and uh, so you, you guys might have heard of the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, for prayer. And it kind of tries to cover all the different elements of a, of a good prayer life. So there's adoration, you know, thanking God for who he is, confession, confessing our sins, um, thanksgiving, thanking God for things he's done for us, and then supplication, asking for things. Um, but uh, <laughs> so you might have thought ACTS was a good acronym, but I'm telling you, there's a better one built right into the Bible here in First <laughs> Timothy 2.1, and that is SPIT. <laughs> Supplications, <laughs> prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. The SPIT prayer. <laughs> the SPIT prayer life. You, you got to be spitting if you want to be if you want to be a faithful Christian. Um, <laughs> in your prayer life. So <laughs> I don't know what it is in like other translations, but in the ESV, they went with spit. So they did. They did. Here we are. It's good. Well, maybe, maybe that's you. Uh, people should send in their, uh, you know, if they have other translations, maybe from other languages, if you can, uh, bring it in. So, so if, if you guys have a better acronym than spit, uh, send it to the John three fifteen podcast at gmail.com. And uh, it's, we'd love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so humor aside, because I, I do think this is kind of funny that it ended up that way. If you want to memorize first Timothy two, one, I just gave you a, a huge boost to remembering the order. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, there's, there's some differences between these terms. I don't think we should overemphasize them. I think Paul's point of putting them here is, is for emphasis, right. To, to kind of, heap up synonyms as much as possible um yes yeah his 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 notion is not that there's four wholly distinct categories of thing that we do but he's trying to like cover the whole like notion of prayer by you know saying it's like it's like this and like this and like this meaning do you know the whole orbed kind of prayer yeah because like a supplication and an intercession those are kind of the same thing, except intercession is maybe more directed to other people. Uh, supplication, perhaps a little more about ourselves. I don't know that that's like true. I didn't do Greek word studies on all of these, so I apologize. Um, I don't know that that's something that's like a super strong distinction. And certainly the generic term prayer just means prayer. So we have a generic term thrown in the middle here. Thanksgivings, of course, is a bit different. That's exactly what it sounds like, giving thanks. So, uh, and that might be something that's that's a little more important to highlight because I feel like um, from time to time, I remember to pray for people in positions of authority, uh, but I usually just pray that they'd repent because I don't like them. And I never <laughs> so, really yes. thank God for whatever is good. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that's well, something I need to think about is the Thanksgiving's part. Yeah. Or and me maybe even on the nose, it's like you know frequently if I'm praying for somebody, it's that I'm asking for something. It's like you know there's a prayer request or you you know something like that. But like how often how often am I praying? 
thanking God for someone else. And it's like, and I mean, that that's all over the New Testament of, of Paul saying, it's like, you know, I always thank God for you. You know, it's like, how many letters does he start out talking about that of, you know, various believers in different places. And so this notion of, you know, Thanksgiving isn't just like what God's done for us, but that, you know, we can be thanking God for other people as well. Yeah, and it, it could even take the form of of um, people who we aren't happy with, but who we'd probably be better off with than without, you know, mm-hmm. something that has obviously been on a lot of people's minds over the last few years would be the police, right? And uh, regardless of, I, I think there's some entirely justifiable reasons to uh, hope for better policing, Um but also, if we didn't have police at all, things would go downhill pretty quickly. Like, we need somebody to enforce the law, even if there are many evil laws. Uh, there's also laws against murder, and I'm pretty happy there's police enforcing those where I am, you know. So maybe maybe we do want to pray, like, hey, the present order is something that disadvantages me or is perhaps unfair to the church, um, and perhaps even evil in many ways like we've we've talked about the whole transgender bathrooms thing right there are some very evil things being pushed by the people uh, in charge of of our nation and of most western nations but also i mean they do do good things right uh Mm -hmm. we aren't uh being persecuted for being christians in any in any direct way right um and for the most part not even in any indirect way Mm -hmm. uh you know, we are not a communist nation, right? We 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 can pursue careers, and uh, and in many ways are left unperturbed to build a good life for ourselves. And uh, so, you know, these things are. I'm not being a very good libertarian when I say this, but I think I am being true to Paul when I say that we ought to be thankful um, for those who are ministers of God and attend to. Uh, punishing evil and rewarding good even when they're bad at it yeah um they there is at least some times when they're good and if we're never thinking about being thankful for those times then i think we end up looking a little more like the mob in their opposition to the police or whatever instead of a christian with a principled point to make if that makes sense yeah and 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 if we are only ever focused on the ways that civil leaders fail it's like i mean until we have the eternal kingdom the civil leaders are always going to fail us and so there is something for even if they're objectively evil and terrible now it's there's something for practicing thanksgiving uh you know you know being grateful to god for the good that he has given us even if it is small goods from current leaders because I mean, we're never going to get the perfect leaders. And so even if we get better ones later, it just means, you know, we'll have already been practicing being, you know, thankful to God for the good when it comes. Sure. And I think there's also an element of of um, the practice of being thankful and praying for others who we might be at odds with uh, helps us kind of recall the fact that we have really no clue if we would be any better than them if we mm. were in their position. Yeah. There's that phrase that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I know that I'm a sinful person and I don't have control over that much, but I definitely screw up a lot of the things that I'm in control of from time mm-hmm. to time. 
And it's like, man, if I was granted the sort of power that others are granted, uh, maybe that would corrupt me, right? Maybe the ring is not good for anyone to have. <laughs> maybe it needs to be cast into Mount Doom. and Throw it into the fire. <laughs> right. And without saying that people shouldn't be held accountable for their actions, because of course they should, and the Lord will hold kings accountable, um, maybe we ought to understand a little more of that burden Frodo was carrying around that whole time, right? That uh, maybe even the good can be corrupted by it. Um, and the solution is to just get the ring out of here. Right? Yeah. Um, and so perhaps the Lord sees some of this stuff a little differently than we do. Maybe they are acting tyrannical, but maybe it's they're in a position where even the best of us would would fail similarly. And I think by reflecting a little more on that, uh, that helps us from becoming conceited, which is never a good thing to be conceited. It doesn't matter how evil the people in charge of us are. Um, conceit or assuming that uh, we would make righteous rulers ourselves. It's probably not something that's becoming of the Christian. Yeah. Um, right now, to circle back to the very beginning of our podcast, uh, I think it's incumbent on the church to pray for Putin. <laughs> right. Um, and to pray for Biden and to pray for um, everyone in the Department of Defense. Uh like getting into a serious war with Russia is something no sensible person should want. <laughs> um, this is not World War II anymore. We have nukes. They have nukes. Like this is pretty serious stuff. Uh, I think all serious minded Christians, like I would appeal to you if you're listening to this right now. Uh, I don't think we're going to do a prayer on the podcast. That might come across a little tacky <laughs> instead of, you know, just talking. But yeah. uh, I think definitely having this conversation with you, John, makes me want to like go say a prayer uh, yeah. for peace. And I think I encourage everyone listening to this to do the same um, because we want to lead peaceful and quiet lives and we don't want people to be hurt. And there are very horrifying things on, you know, on the scales right now. Um, I don't know. It's, it's sober minded. I'm very thankful that Franklin Graham of all people was praying for Putin uh, before this all kicked off. And I, I hope that God will listen to the prayers of his church and his people and turn away this this wrath, you know, this uh, action of military uh, intervention. And uh, I hope more kings and people in high positions aren't dragged into it. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't want war. Like, it's, we do not want that, particularly with, with um, a superpower like this. Uh, and uh, regardless of Christians' perhaps different takes on geopolitics, it's a complicated issue. Christians aren't all going to agree on foreign policy-related things, but I think all Christians can pray for peace mm -hmm. and pray that uh, even if they're wicked rulers, that the people in charge would make decisions that uh, that honor Christ, even if inadvertently. Right? <laughs> I think there's like a proverb about that, that the Lord uh, turns the heart of the king in his hand, right? It's about God's sovereignty over over people. And of course, the, the authorities have been instituted by God, as it says in Romans 13. Mm -hmm. So um, God is the one who can uh, bring about peace. And uh, until he comes and institutes his perfect peaceful kingdom... Uh, we are the salt and light of the earth, and we should be praying that God would turn the hand of 
of kings away from conflict, away from war, away from persecution of God's people. So that's my little, uh, I'll get off my soapbox, John. I've been talking a while. You can (laughs) add something if you want. No, I think that's a great place to leave it right there, Jeremy. Well, good. So all y'all go pray. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's our other meat. Go pray. (laughs) We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.